You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing all right. How you? I'm okay. I got a little bit of the crud. Oh, no. Yeah. You know, the crud that you were constantly complaining about for like three weeks on end? Is that a medical term you're using? Yep, that's the uh, that's the scientific term. Crud. I got the crud. Is it like an acronym or something? I believe it is. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm uh, voice is a little weak. Got a little bit of a cough. Going to try not to... Uh... Actually, I'm going to do what you do, and I'll just wait till you start talking, and then I will cough. Right, well, just I like can't you... cough when I'm talking. did to me for weeks on end. You look fine. Thank which you. Is to Thanks. say you look as just disheveled as normal. I feel great, except beside the crud. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see how this one plays out. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, we know that UFC titles are heavy pieces of precious metal that can also be used to keep your pants up. But are they just a fairy tale, man? And in round number two, your boy Ben Folks checked in with one Jason Mayhem Miller this past week. We'll talk about exactly what is going on with him and Venator FC in round number two. Did I say that right? Venator FC? Is that what it is? Nailed it. Does that mean something in Italian? I believe it does. Do you know what? Something having to do with martial times. I forget exactly Wow, why. you just wrote a whole story about this. Yeah, and you I learned what it was, run it but through I can't, Google Translate? I can't remember at the moment. And in round number three, Cyborg comes to the octagon. But for what? And what's next? All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Wow, a little bit late there on your listener mail. I got it, though. (laughs) First question this week comes from Cody Wilson. First paragraph, one word. Bruh. Okay, like that? Yep. That's that's that's, the kind of basis we're on? That's how he leads off. Bruh. Can't a guy acknowledge his fans with an engine rev and a short but spirited sub 35 mile per hour drag race? Why is everyone out to get John Jones? I have a feeling he could have an interesting conversation with my cousin when he gets out of his third stint in county, because cousin Dave also seems to constantly be forced into situations where he is talking to a police officer with the face of a liar, and quote-unquote, things get heated. (laughs) This question is awesome. I know, this is a good one. I guess they both just have to find a way to live life without ever making mistakes at all, because everyone is out to catch them slipping. Wow. Good question, Cody Wilson. Yeah. Have you watched the dash cam? I have or not. not the, the body cam footage? I have not gotten the chance to watch the police body cam footage yet, though I did hear about former UFC light heavyweight champion John Jones going on uh, Ariel Helwani's The MMA Hour. Tried to get out in front of it a little bit. And maybe, yeah. Maybe his crisis management team advised him to get out in front of this story because he uh, he admitted that he had been he'd received five tickets, right? Not not including speeding, but five moving violations for quote unquote drag racing with some fans. Yeah. Uh now I went into this thinking, here we go again, John Jones. And still you, you can find plenty of room to criticize him after you watch the footage. But honestly, 
Cabo's got to be a little bit of a jerk. Do you think bit. that? Do you think that John Jones is a victim of targeting? You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. But it did seem like the cop maybe saw a young black man in a white Corvette revving his engine at a stoplight and then jumping off the line a little bit when the light changed. Did not accuse him of speeding, but called that drag racing, which I guess technically you you can call that as drag racing if you're just revving up your engine like that. But it seemed like. You know, the cop at some point tried to basically present it as if he is out here to protect the citizens of Albuquerque from the vehicular menace John Jones. It seemed like maybe overselling it a little bit. And just the way the cop stop, starts off this interaction with him, it's it's not exactly polite. You know, seemed like maybe the whole thing was uh, a little bit overblown. And then the the way it really goes wrong is toward the end of the stop where John Jones is trying to argue with the guy, telling him, I wasn't drag racing, I wasn't speeding, you're just messing with me, come on. Um, and that after the guy is handing over all these tickets to him, he asks him, was there something you wanted to say, Mr. Jones? And he says, oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, there was. And you're like, no, <laughs> no, there is no. And he even like kind of verifies that the body camera is on and recording him and then goes on this rant calling the guy a liar and all this, you know, a, a bunch of using a bunch of blue language uh, toward this police officer. And you're like, man, so... You knew that you were being taped. You had the opportunity to just not say anything and just move on with your day. And you you took it one extra step further. And that's where it really, that's where you get in trouble if you're John Jones. Yeah. And look, I think we've talked about this before, but for years before and during the life of this show, uh, I think that we're, we're, I don't want to speak for you, but we're both on record being fairly pro John Jones. For a long time, it seemed like he received a a boatload of crap from MMA fans that he didn't necessarily deserve. Uh, in the in the latter years, in more recent times, I guess you might say, he has certainly given his detractors reason to dislike him, like a lot of a lot of legitimate ammunition at can be aimed at, at John Jones at this point. Um, probably most particularly his, his hit and run accident, um, from last year. So if you told me that John Jones was out here drag racing and then popping off to the cops, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised, but also in a town the size of Albuquerque, which I just looked up on Wikipedia population, 545,852. Uh, pretty, pretty big town, but not huge. Not, not the size of a New York city or a Los Angeles. If you also told me that the, the police department of Albuquerque, New Mexico, all knew goddamn good and well who John fucking Jones was. And if not outwardly, but tacitly made it clear that like, Hey, if you get the opportunity to bust this guy, do it. I also wouldn't be surprised by that. Would you? No, I can't say that I would be surprised by that. Uh, it just keeps feeding into, though, this, the same thing we were talking about before, that it seems like John Jones is coming back with this kind of renewed fervor for the fight game and for, uh, laying waste to all his opponents and, and all those, uh, who have been detractors in this, these difficult times for him, but does not seem like John Jones has necessarily morphed into a different person. Which is the thing that he keeps trying to tell us, right? Every time he pops up on one of these like walk and talk things with Ariel Hawani or something else where he wants us to believe that he's much more mature and he's learned a bunch from this. But then when you see him in somewhat more unguarded moments like this or when he's John back and forth with Daniel Cormier, 
it's still the the guy who um, really wants you to know he's number one and isn't afraid to get in your face to do it. Does not seem terribly mature in those moments. And so, I don't know, I guess I, I come back to that same question we feel like we were asking ourselves. Are we still in the headed for trouble portion of the e-true Hollywood story version of John Jones's life here? Boy, you raise a good point. It's really hard to tell. Uh, and the, you know, the truth is, I don't necessarily care if John Jones comes off like an a-hole a lot of the time. I mean, the guy is the best mixed martial arts fighter on the planet and has been since a young age. He's, he's on the road to being the greatest mixed martial arts fighter of all time. It would be weird, I think, for us to expect for him to be completely relatable. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, he's a weirdo. He just... He just is. He keeps a giant African cat as a pet. <laughs> Except for when he loses it wild in the streets. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I don't necessarily need John Jones to be my next door neighbor, although that would be awesome. Except for the wild African cat roaming the streets and probably him shooting his guns off or whatever happens. Outside uh, revving the Corvette while your daughter's right, trying dra- to sleep. Drag racing in the streets. Uh, I don't need him to be that guy, but... I just need him to not pop positive for cocaine and to not T-bone pregnant ladies at 1030 in the morning on a Sunday afternoon in, in Albuquerque, right? Yeah. Like the thing that I'm asking from him as a fan does not seem uh, strenuous to me. Right. I'm just asking for him to like to not do tons of dumb shit. Right. Well, and that's one of the things I was thinking while watching this video of him and the cop going back and forth with each other. And it. It did seem like a situation where it wasn't, you know, one guy being an intolerable jerk and the other guy just a working man out there trying to do his job. It seemed like both guys being a little bit of jerks, maybe taking turns being jerks, uh, as is often the case when, when jerkdom enters into the equation. And I wondered if this had happened back, like I say, we had all bought the image of John Jones, uh, pastor son, really nice guy, clean cut, straight laced guy. And then this pops up. Would that have been more of a shock and as opposed to now when we all have this image in our minds and it's just like, oh, John Jones did it again. At least he didn't hit anybody this time. Doesn't really seem so bad, really, when you think about what he's done in the past uh, behind the wheel of a car. This one seems like the closest thing he, he's come to having a case that he is being treated unfairly. And yet at the same time, you do kind of worry when it seems like a guy who keeps getting into trouble and never thinks it's ever anything he did. Yeah, uh, it's indicative of a certain kind of personality, I think. Uh, and th- I mean, you're right that this does kind of follow the pattern of his previous misdeeds, uh, where you know, before the, the UFC saw fit to slap him with a suspension and to, to strip him of the title, uh, it seemed like he, his personal chaos was escalating a little bit. And I'm not sure that this particularly fits into that vein, but it does seem like a lot of small, indiscretions a lot of small mistakes that kind of lead to one then high profile incident and so like yeah man if i was on john jones's crisis management team or a person who was uh friendly with john jones or a member of his family or a person that was really invested in uh in his well-being i guess i would be a little bit worried because it 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 does seem sort of like the alcoholic who has pledged to clean his life up but is still hanging around with all of his friends from the bar you know what I mean? Like, if that was your your brother, or in the case of Cody Wilson, co-main event podcast emailer, your cousin Dave, like you would you would consider it only a matter of time before 
they once again made the same kind of mistakes that they had been making for their entire adult lives. And, and with, you know, as long as John Jones continues to make these small mistakes, I suppose it's easy to imagine that he will at some point make a, a big one. But I don't know. I also don't want to read a ton into it. You know what I mean? Like, right. I'm, yeah. I guess I'm playing both sides of the fence here. But like, do I think it's troubling that John Jones continually gets moving violations and has not just hired an amateur fighter at Jackson Winkle John to be his personal chauffeur? Yeah, I kind of do. But at the same time, I don't want to blow it up into being a, a huge deal. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. Maybe the thing to do is for him to move to somewhere like New York, where you just get around on the subway, or you take a taxi or something, and just remove driving from the equation. Imagine the completely alternate universe life John Jones could live if he just was never even interested in acquiring a driver's license. I mean, and if you're John Jones and you you seriously believe that the Albuquerque police are are quote-unquote targeting you, that's got to be a weird feeling because... Uh, it's not like he can move elsewhere, right? Because like, I mean, he could, but he has this relationship with, with the fight camp that's there and, and it is largely considered the best, uh, fight camp in the world and, and all of his coaches are there and it's been a, you have to believe a, a big key to his success to train with those guys. So, uh, I don't know. But it's not like if that were, if you were took, took that out of the equation, it's not like it would break your heart to have to move out of Albuquerque. Let's just say that. Probably not. I feel like we can. We all know the reason why John Jones lives in Albuquerque. <laughs> the lax laws on the importation of large African cats. <laughs> all right. Next question this week comes to us from Joe Mosqueda. He writes, my question is about GSP. He is not officially retired. I'm not sure if he is on the active roster. I'm sure he is still on contract with Zufa. Should guys like GSP still be randomly drug tested by USADA? Thank you for your time. It's an interesting question. It is. And that, uh, a lot of there's a lot of uh, smoke, I guess you would say, around George St. Pierre right now and his possible return to the UFC. Uh, and it, you know, this question of whether or not the guys who who are not active fighters but continue to be under UFC contract should be drug tested is kind of interesting because, I mean, we all know the reason why UFC contracts are written the way they are, and the reason why George St. Pierre. A guy like George St. Pierre is still under UFC contract, and, you know, that's because the UFC wants to be able to control you as long as they can. And the last thing that the UFC wants is George St. Pierre showing up in Bellator or George St. Pierre showing up in 1FC to fight Ben Askren or to fight Ben Henderson or something like that at welterweight. Uh, but it does feel like maybe they, sh if they don't, they should have a special classification. Maybe. I don't know. Well, I think the problem is, from what I remember reading when the UFC was first instituting this USADA program, since it was not in people's contracts to begin with, they had to get everybody to go around and get everybody to sign off on this. They can't just institute a brand new clause of some more stringent drug testing everybody has to go through with the possibility of much more severe punishments than they're used to from state athletic commissions without making some addendum to their contracts. And Initially, there was some talk about, you know, some people were not as quick to sign it and return that addendum to their contracts as others. But since GSP was out the game before this USADA thing happened, uh, I would have to think that, you know, he was under no obligation to sign that and return it, at least, you know, unless he wants to come back. So I don't know if he has signed anything to say that he would participate in that. But that seems like one big, you know, practical obstacle in order to get him involved in the USADA testing during retirement. As far as like the more philosophical question of should, if the guys are going to stay under contract, should you be able to keep testing him? 
I mean, you'd think so. Like that, that only makes sense, especially in this sport when we all know retirement is not such a black and white issue. Lots of people retire and then unretire sometimes within the same calendar year. Uh, but I, I do agree that there, for one thing, that doesn't seem like the top priority for USADA, testing a guy who may come back to fight. Seems like we got enough work on our hands with the active UFC roster. Um, but that would be something I would think about for future contracts stuff is that as long as there's a possibility that, that person may come back, hey, maybe USADA shows up at your door. Yeah, and George St. Pierre, let's be clear, has always been a, a, a proponent of enhanced drug testing. Uh, so I don't, you know, I, I, I don't imagine that he would have a problem with it per se, but it does, you know, it brings up a lot of, uh, invasion of privacy issues, personal responsibility issues that, uh, that I think would be interesting. And I would wager that George St. Pierre has probably not been tested yet by USADA. Uh, you know, one thing about the USADA thing that I'm really enjoying, and I know from past conversations that it's the kind of thing that's right up your alley, is how many fighters you'll see, like on Twitter or something, talking about, oh man, got rousted out of bed. Yeah. yeah. Eight o'clock this morning, USADA uh, inspectors knocking on my door. Coming in here to take blood and urine sample, rousting me out of bed at 8 o'clock in the morning, Chad. And I know that the old man Chad Dundas sees that. People complain about being woken up at the crack of 8 o'clock a.m. Well, it's not, I mean, let's shakes his head. It's not as bad as back when I first got on Twitter and I made the mistake of following various UFC personalities, including but not limited to UFC Octagon Girls. And Ariane Celeste would constantly be on Twitter being like, good morning, everyone. Hope everyone is getting off to a good day. About to hit the gym. And it would be like 1130 in the morning. <laughs> I mean, it would be 1130 in the morning in California, right. which would be 1230 here in the one true time zone. And every time I saw it, it would make me mad. Yeah. Because I was always like, it is just barely morning where you are. <laughs> I know that kind of stuff makes you so mad. Some of us have children and we have been up since the crack of goddamn dawn. <laughs> Brittany Palmer rising and grinding at 10 a.m., getting off to the dog park or something. I, I know how it's just, I love the look on your face when I even bring it up. Those young ladies got unfollowed. <laughs> Next question this week comes from Isaac Spooner. He writes, so this whole Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz 2 thing has apparently gotten to the point that Frankie Edgar's manager is accusing McGregor of ducking Edgar. Cooler heads would probably argue that it is Conor McGregor we're talking about here. Ducking just doesn't seem in his nature. However, ducking fights is absolutely a thing. Middleweight boxing champ Gennady Glovkin. Nailed it. How do you think I did there? Yeah. Uh, has been, has had to deal with people ducking him for years. Uh, he's excited, he's exiting that phase of his career now. Uh, that he's got a belt or two, thankfully. So how long can McGregor keep fighting people other than Frankie Edgar before we start taking the ducking accusations seriously? Or do we think it's McGregor's fault? Perhaps he uh, is as much a victim of the UFC's goofy matchmaking as Frankie Edgar is. Have a dialogue. Uh, and I'm going to say the thing that I have always said and the thing that I said early on, and that is Conor McGregor ain't going back to featherweight unless he absolutely has to. I wholeheartedly believe that at this point. I don't think it's any fun for him to make that weight. I don't think he feels that good when he has to make that weight. And I think that Conor McGregor feels like if he has more lucrative opportunities at welterweight and or lightweight, he will take all of them before he ever has to go back to 145. 
that raises interesting questions about w- what in Hades is going to happen to the featherweight title and, you know, what we're going to do while Conor McGregor is on his BJ Penn-style vision quest to go fight at all these different weights. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like the to Conor McGregor at this point, the UFC featherweight title is merely a safety valve, where if he loses this fight against Nate Diaz or he loses this in another fight, if he, if he were to put up a losing streak, I guess you would say, uh, he would go back to 145 and defend the title. So I don't know that he is necessarily ducking anyone as much as he is ducking that weight cut. Yeah, I also I don't get the logic of saying this guy wants to fight somebody who just beat him because he is scared to lose to this other guy. And he's he's already been beaten by Nate Diaz. And not really in a fluke sense, got beaten up by Nate Diaz and kind of broken there uh, when the fight finally went to the floor. If he's so scared of taking a beating, why does he want that fight again? That part doesn't make sense to me. If you're just saying like he's he's scared of a loss, wouldn't he be scared to fight the guy who already proved that he's a better fighter than he is? Uh, it seems to me like maybe... It's the opposite thing where as soon as he lost the fight, then it became a thing where he absolutely had to go and and try to get one back against Nate Diaz. And I think it's more likely that instead of being scared of Frankie Edgar, Frankie Edgar is just really low on his list of concerns and probably also seems low on the list of fights that will bring him big paydays. So if we're going to go with a kind of Occam's razor approach to that, that, that would be the explanation that I'd come up with. Yeah, I agree with you. And at the same time, let's let's be clear that I feel sympathetic towards the plight of Frank James Edgar. Oh, yeah. 34-year-old man sitting in his easy chair with his bifocals on, reading his newspaper, looking over the top of his newspaper to news that the UFC is considering a, an immediate rematch between Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor and probably th- tossing his newspaper on the floor and, and saying, fiddlesticks! <laughs> I feel I feel empathetic toward Frankie Edgar because we all know Frankie Edgar is a super good featherweight and frankly a nice and likable guy and we all want good things to happen for Frankie Edgar, uh, but I think that Conor McGregor, like you said, is is perhaps motivated mostly by those heavyweight checks that he likes to cash, and even though as mixed martial arts purists it might hit our ear in a fairly sour note to think about this immediate rematch. It's the most lucrative fight for Conor McGregor right now is yeah, Nate I mean, Diaz. I and think I think gonna that's all you lu- need to know. A lot of lucrative fights out there for him. But I do think that on the notion of poor Frank Edgar tapping out his pipe, looking across the, the middle distance out while he sits on his porch just to keep those neighborhood kids from, from messing with his trash cans again, I think the right thing to do here would be to – try to get Conor McGregor to give up that featherweight title if he's not going back because you're holding up the division at this point. There some there's some interesting stuff that could happen in that division and right now it's just a bunch of pissed off 145 pound dudes. Yeah, I said I I still think I said this last week but I still think the the proper move would be to have an interim title fight between Jose Aldo and, and Frankie Edgar. Uh, and I think that's the best move for Conor McGregor, too, because if you end up messing around and losing an AD as again, uh, then you have an automatic next step and to, to fight, you know, whoever wins that Aldo Edgar fight and who, who emerges as the interim champion. And then, and it, it also simplifies things for the UFC. If, if Conor McGregor decides he doesn't ever want to go back to featherweight again, you automatic, you already have a champion there. You could just convert from interim to the regular deal. And obviously it probably keeps Jose Aldo and Frankie Edgar a bit happier than they are currently. So I'm going to stand by that as, as my preferred 
uh, modus operandi at this point, although I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. We haven't seen any signs of that uh, being the plan just yet, but we'll have to wait and see. I mean, you can only give Conor McGregor so much, so long of a leash before you have to do something with the featherweight title. Next question this week comes from Gabe Dirt. He writes, Dudes, what's up with all the rematches, man? Weidman and Rockhold, Connor with Diaz. These were definitive finishes, and it's a, and it's rematch city. Is the cash, or is it the cash, is it favoritism, spelled in everyone's favorite way, the Canadian. Throwing that U in there. Slash English way. Is it laziness? Bring on the fresh challenges, boys. Come on. Okay, the challenges, boys, I'm going to say that's Canadian. That reeks of Canadianness to me. Oh, I, yes. It, I say it's almost certain. Otherwise, if it were British, he would have said, bring on the fresh challenges, mates. Blokes. <laughs> yes, blokes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree, though, The with all the rematches. I think Connor versus Diaz, that's the one where you say looks like a pure money play. Um, Weidman and Rockhold, though, that's the one that still, whenever I remember that that fight is happening again... I kind of shake my head, kind of cock my head to the side like my dog uh, when he when he hears a, a ringtone on somebody's cell phone. I, because there's just so so much other action going on at middleweight. And it was a pretty clear-cut fight. Nothing really weird happened in that one. It was kind of a beat down there towards the end. I just I don't feel nearly as excited to see those guys do it again, brother, as I did the first time. Well, what if... Chris Weidman doesn't fall down this time. Okay. He doesn't do that spin kick. He doesn't fall down. It's not like he was running away with the fight up until that point. No, it was a, it was a good and close fight. I mean, you say that there's a lot going on in middleweight, but at the same time, you look at the UFC middleweight top 15 list, and, and it kind of lays bare the uh, somewhat tenuous nature of the division right now, right? You, Chris Weidman is still your number one contender. Uh, your number two contender is Jacare Souza, and uh, we all know he's booked to face uh, a, a suddenly large and in-charge-looking Vitor Belfort again um, at the uh, UFC 198 down there in Curitiba. Uh, then your number your number three is Vitor Belfort. Your number four is Michael Bisping, which, hey, man, I've already said I'm on board with the idea of a Bisping title shot, but that also doesn't mean that I think he would win it. It would be like giving the guy a gold watch, a Lifetime Achievement Award, which is a pretty weird reward. When you think about it, like well, the reward is that you get to get beat up by Luke Rockhold. And you've already been beat up by Luke Rockhold before. And that one wasn't terribly competitive. After Bisping, your number five is Leota Machida. Your number six is Anderson Silva. So you're already down to your number seven contender in Robert Whitaker before you even get to someone who would even make any damn sense as a, as a title challenger. Yeah, I see what you're saying, but... For one well, so thing, you got Yoel Romero. Well, we don't, we're not even going to get into Yoel Romero, what he's got going on, the soldier of dog. But I think one thing to remember is that a lot of these fights were made kind of in light of deciding to do a rematch with Wyman and Rockle. It's not like you, that's the landscape as the UFC found it. It, it kind of made some of these pairings after it decided, okay, we're going to have these two guys do it again. And I, I always just feel like a, a rematch needs to have some kind of logic behind it. That, you know, it was a close fight, or it was a really, really excellent fight, or something weird happened at the ending, or there was, you know... I, and then maybe you could say with this one, there was reason to believe that Weidman, as he has said, was not 100% going into that fight, or had, was significantly diminished going into that fight. I don't know. But I feel like you got to give me some reason for why are these two going to do it again. Sometimes it can be as simple as, 
the guy who was the champion had the belt for a really, really long time, never got beat, and then finally lost one. He he deserves to have a chance to get it back. But A, that's not really the case with Weidman, and B, Jose freaking Aldo. That would be my response to that. So well, who do you do though? Like who if not the Luke Wide or Luke Rockhold Chris Weidman rematch, like I'm just not seeing a lot of a lot of other good options, is what I'm saying. Like you could do Jock Ray, but he's coming off Jacques that lo- that loss. Coming off the loss to the soldier dog. Who failed a drug test. Failed an out-of-competition drug test. And it was already a close fight to begin with. It was a split decision. Just forget it, man. Do Chakaray. I mean, I'm not going to argue with you. I feel like just watching Chakaray fight for the title would be awesome. Get to see that alligator walk. I'm just (laughs) saying, if you're booking, if you're the UFC matchmakers, maybe you think just don't you don't have don't have a lot of great options right now that could be anyway that's going to do it for listener mail this week if you have a question a comment a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks you know how to do it you can go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says ben what's it say email the podcast email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there you can sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from tuesday through friday when we're not recording the podcast it's short it's informative it catches you up on the biggest stories of the day while trying to be a little bit humorous we think you'll like it if you don't it's really easy to unsubscribe as for right now though we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one Ben, have you ever in your life seen a Diaz brother smile as much as Nate Diaz has smiled in the last 23 days? You know, I haven't really been keeping tabs on Grinning it. his ass off every time I turn around. On Nate. daytime TV, on UFC programming, just, it seems like he has got motherfuckers coming over every hour on the hour to pamper his shit out, if I had to guess. Well, you don't want to be mean mugging on daytime TV, do you? Daytime TV? Come on, man. Cut no, him, it seems like slack. it you're seems up like there on Nate... extra, sitting in one of those weird director's chairs. You, you gotta feel a little bit of a smile coming on. It seems like Nate Diaz has been waiting for this the whole time. Like now that he's hit the big time, he's gonna he's gonna start smiling at us. I'm looking at the picture of him grinning right now. That is the still shot from the video of him going on UFC Tonight last Wednesday, where he appeared with other UFC employees, Kenny Florin and Michael Bisping, uh, to talk about what's going on with him right now, and where he reiterated uh, a number of times, essentially, that he doesn't have as very many stipulations for what he does next, so long as his money is right. And at one point... Uh, he said he only wanted to take the biggest fights possible, and Michael Bisping countered, shouldn't the biggest fight have a title on the line? Almost like these two guys are, are speaking for the, speaking from their own distinct experiences. And in the process, kind of speaking two different languages. That's right. And, and Diaz says, I think that title is kind of a fairy tale, man, right? I know that you and your guy Danny Downs, Went back and forth on this on, with trading your trading shots column on MMA Junkie this past week. So I guess I will just ask you, 
is the title thing kind of a fairy tale, man? It is kind of a fairy He's tale. He's kind of right, isn't he? Yeah, but I you mean, know what? I would not, I, I, I did not necessarily come to that conclusion on my own. And yet then when hearing Nate Diaz talk about it and you kind of realize, I see what he's saying, you know, and it's, it goes against a lot of the accepted conventional wisdom in MMA because we're, we've all been told this for so long that, uh, especially for UFC fighters where the pay is not that great across the board, the real money comes when you get to that title. You get to that title, you start getting points on the pay-per-view, you start cashing them big checks, you become a, a known name brand fighter, the kind of guy who could travel around and do seminars even after he's not the champion anymore, that that's the point you have to get to if you want to make real big walk-away kind of money in MMA. We've all really accepted that, I think. And now I think that it's the era has changed a little bit uh, in how we view this stuff and seeing that popularity is tougher to, to cement for yourself, but it's, it lasts a little more. It's a little more enduring than just having that, that metal belt around your waist. And that's the thing that actually gets you the big money. I mean, the, the title might technically kind of qualify you for the big money, but having people really, really want to see you fight, that's the thing that, that gets you the big money. Being the kind of needle mover that Dana White has for so long insisted that Nate Diaz is not when he's in contract renegotiations, which made me then also think, isn't this just like a Diaz brother to be for a long time saying you want these things, calling out for these things, requesting these things that everybody else looks at you and says, come on, man, are you crazy? What are you, what are you talking about? Like when Nate, Nick Diaz was, you know, coming off of a string of losses and saying, I want to fight Anderson Silva. And everybody's like, dude, come on. You're just, that's just Nick being Nick. And then he gets to fight with Anderson Silva. And Nate Diaz talking about, I'm going to sit out. My money's not right. I want those big fights. I want Conor McGregor. He knows this is the real fight. And everybody's kind of look at him like, okay, we're, we're, we're having fun. I'm glad we're all having fun, Nate. And then he gets the fight and he wins the fight. And now he's in the driver's seat. And you realize, man, it's like, these guys are unrestrained by concerns about reality. That that's kind of the strength of the Diaz brothers. Yeah, you kind of preempted my my next comment and question, and that's that over on Planet Diaz, they've been saying this for a long time, right? You like going dating back to the days when Nick Diaz is out here fighting all these hitters. You know, <laughs> right. like they have always, and maybe it's because they come uh, from more of a boxing centric mentality, perhaps. But like they have have long and consistently said that prize fighting is all about the prize. And by prize, I mean money, not necessarily the championship. As a fan of the sport, I am certainly interested in who the champion is. I am interested in the idea that what we're doing with all of this mixed martial arts fighting is trying to determine who's the best in the world and the best in the world ought to have the title. And, and we ought to all be in pursuit of the title at all times. And it has taken me a while to come around on the idea of, you know, basically this idea of the Diaz brothers, the best, that the best fighters in the world are the guys who get paid the best money, as Nate Diaz says on this video. Uh, but I think I've reached a point now in my, in my life where I'm cool with it and I understand the realities of, of the game and, and how it's played. And I feel like we are all in agreement that it feels pretty good to see non needle moving ass Nate Diaz in the driver's seat. I think that, that there is some, uh, uh, that good feelings are attached to that. And, and, and maybe we like to see the UFC put in a position where it can, can squirm a little bit by a guy that, uh, it, it has had contentious contract relationships with before in the past. 
But, Ben, are we now in a situation where this UFC matchmaking, maybe unbeknownst to the UFC or simply by coincidence, has come around to the Diaz brothers' way of thinking, in a way? Because it seems like the things that they have been articulating and professing for years are now sort of starting to be borne out in how the UFC does business, not just with them, but sort of across the board. Yeah, I think that's definitely something you can see happening. You see it, you know, the with welterweight division where we decided, okay, Carlos Condit's going to fight Robbie Lawler. Why? Because it'd be an exciting fight, and it's the thing that people will most likely want to pay for to see. And we, you know, why are we doing Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz again? Because people will pay to see it. And I think that the UFC has in some ways learned uh, from even looking at Bellator, seeing some of the things Bellator is able to do with just guys who still have a name from years ago, uh, looking at its own roster and being able to see, this game isn't necessarily about number one versus number two all the time. That's kind of a, a mistake that we make sometimes in thinking about it, getting caught up in rankings and who's moving up and who's moving down. Uh, and really, they got to put those butts in seats. And I think that they've seen the success that you can have when you're just saying, all right, we'll take a few lumps in the headlines weeks out from the fight when we book a fight that everybody uh, gets mad about because six weeks later, by the time the actual fight rolls around, you're all going to get out your credit cards to pay to watch it. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, that does show you that those guys who have been talking about it for a long, long time knew what they were talking about. But I also think it matters who you are because for some people, the title may be the fairy tale, but it's the only shot there is. Because there's some of those people who don't have that big personality. Uh, like I was just talking to, to Neil Magny today, and he's one of those guys, we can see him improving a lot from fight to fight. He's climbing up the ranks, but he's not going to be one of those dudes who just is such a huge personality that people are like, man, I'll, I don't care who Neil Magny fights. I don't care if he gets three losses in a row. I still got to see me some Neil Magny every time he fights. You know, the interest in him is on a guy who is winning fights and climbing up the, that ladder and getting closer to the title shot um, just by winning one fight at a time. It's not in him as this cult of personality. And so for some people, I think that's always going to be the case, that the, the title is the only fairy tale there is. And it may be kind of a, a distant hope, but it's the only thing you can strive for. Yeah, I think that matchmaking-wise, you certainly have to strike a balance. I'm not totally against making these fights just because you think it's what the people want to see and that they will be fun fights. But you can't totally abandon the uh, the pursuit of excellence because that is a lot of, historically, and I think it continues to be a lot of what makes mixed martial arts and the UFC, uh, at least for me, a preferable choice over boxing. And, you know, the the the, the differences are, are striking, obviously. Ha <laughs> ha. It's a little made a little pun there. There you the go. Differences are striking. Yeah. You see, uh, are, are you grappling with some of those issues? Grappling with my emotions over here. Uh, the UFC is is a strong centralized force that boxing lacks, and boxing is very uh, fragmented, and so you don't get to see a lot of these quote unquote super fights or the top talent fight the the top talent as much as you want to. And I think that it definitely plays to the UFC's strengths to have this idea that the thing that we are doing is trying to figure out who the best fighter is, and we will always see the most competitive and maybe also the most fun matchups uh, inside this company. I think that that's one of the things that made that company successful early on, and, and I would shudder to think that we would move away from that at any point, even though in my ripe old age I have come to, to grips with the idea that, that 
you know, being marketable is important. And if you are marketable, you're going to get more opportunities than people who are not. Yeah. But I also think, and I've heard this from several fighters before, that for a lot of them, it's not a choice between like, all right, speak up, talk some trash, right. get famous, right. and don't. Yeah. A lot of them are not going to be able to do that. And we've seen how bad it can be when people who do not have that tool in their toolbox try to use it. It just doesn't work. You can really immediately sniff it out that it's not it's not genuine from this guy and it's not going to work from this guy. Um, so some people might have to do, the, do it the old-fashioned way and simply try to be the best fighter in the world. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we'll move on to uh, round number two. Uh, ben, this week, actually today, I think, the uh, the UFC 196 uh, post-fight drug test results were released, and everybody passed. Yay! Yay! And also, are you fucking kidding me, Nate Diaz coming in on short notice, and we know that he had just been on a pleasure cruise <laughs> in Cabo, passed all of his drug tests? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, how am I supposed to have faith in this system if a Diaz brother coming in on short notice and kind of talking openly at the pre-fight press conference about how his plans after the fight were to buy a bunch of weed? How am I supposed to take these drug tests seriously, man? Are you fucking kidding me? This guy's, this guy's clean as a whistle? Really? But hey, out of competition is what I'm hearing. He was out of competition on a pleasure cruise in Cabo. Yeah. This is honestly the world I want to live in. Where you can, where you can take your pleasure cruise out of competition as long as you're not shooting any steroids in your butt and then roll right in and do the damn thing, Jed. I'm all just, for it. I'm, I, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it doesn't breed a lot of faith in me that we're doing, doing our best, our due diligence. <laughs> well, Jed, this week, my, are you fucking kidding me? We're still, we're still talking about Chuck Liddell versus John Jones. You fucking kidding me? And you know why we're still talking about it? Because Chuck Liddell will not let it go. Sit down, man. And now he's talking about how, you know, hey, forget saying would he beat John Jones in his prime, because of course he would, uh, according to Chuck Liddell. He'd beat him right now. Chuck, man, this is not a good look. You don't want to be the aging dude talking about how you, you wish you could put on some pads and run out there on the high school gridiron right now. You'd show these young whippersnappers a thing or two. You fucking kidding me, Chuck? Come on, man. Are you fucking kidding me? UFC executive Chuck Liddell. Let's go the elder statesman route here. Isn't it time for that? Take the high road. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. First of all, Venator, I believe, translates to hunter. So there you go. You got kind of a Bellator situation. Uh, what is Bellator? Warrior? Warrior. And we should point out Venator means hunter in Latin. That's right. Isn't that what Bellator is, too? Is also it? Also Latin? I don't know. Okay. That, man, that sounds right, though. Well, now that we've aired our ignorance a little bit, let's talk about what's happening over there in Venator. First, I first became aware of the existence of Venator when it announced that it had signed Jason Mayhem Miller to come in and fight Luke Barnett, who, unbeknownst to me, had become the Venator middleweight champion uh, with a, a submission win 
over some Italian dude who I did not know at uh, Venator FC2 uh, back in December. Um, and as you alluded to at the top of the show, I reached out to, to Mayhem and to a couple other people around him, um, basically because I was wondering in part, is this a good idea for him, considering, you know, he had all these arrests, um, he's still headed to, to court for trial on some of those charges, I believe the domestic violence one is coming up soon, and to be going in, and fighting in May after not fighting in four years seems like an awful lot of stuff going on at kind of a vulnerable time in Miller's life, and so kind of looking into that, and then after that, they signed Husamar Polyaris. Uh, so it seemed like Venator taking a really let's get some attention going kind of approach to this whole thing and not really caring too much if people were critical of it. Uh, and yet it seems to be kind of working. I mean, we are talking about a promotion that we did not know about beforehand. Will it carry over into any kind of long-term success? Will, will people actually tune in and watch this? Um and is this just more a step in the direction toward the curiosity as promotional tactic uh, approach in MMA? Yeah, should it? I think maybe is the is the is the more pertinent question. We talk about how you know how what to what extent can we possibly continue to uh, enable Bellator in its quest to eventually have someone die. As a result from one of its fights, which, you know, with the, with the Kimbo Slice versus Dada 5000 fight, uh, nearly resulted in that. Dada 5000 had to spend a, a long time in the hospital after that fight was over. I, the, the same question I think can be asked maybe even a little bit more sharply of Venator FC that when, uh, it seems to have taken the, the, the tact that these other MMA promotions and the media are a bunch of pussies for not, you know, for, for asking any questions about the idea that Jason Mayhem Miller would come in and fight, the idea that, that someone like Husmar Paul Horace would come in and fight, the idea that I believe the recently retired Matt Hamill is going to fight right. uh, Sokaju on the same card. The big homie Sokaju. So when was the last time you thought about him? For me, I feel like the question we should ask ourselves is not whether or not this will be successful, but like whether or not we should support it with our, our eyeballs or our dollars if and when it shows up on some kind of internet streaming pay-per-view option. Yeah. Well, you know, I talked to uh, Frank Miranda, the, the president and co-founder of Venator, and I'm not sure exactly what I was expecting after watching his social media presence. Right. Is that have, like that's his actual social media presence? Yep. Like, that's not a... Uh, a troll account or a... It does not appear so. It's not like Coach Edmund? No. Okay. That's him. That's really him on there. Now, uh, see, he is. He seems to be taking the approach of, like, the biggest problem with a promoter like Dana White is that he doesn't take it far enough, right? <laughs> yeah, he's too He's too low-key. Too measured yeah. in his approach. Yeah. Um, he does seem obviously well aware of what kind of game he's playing with social media and, and the way he's working people up on there. But he's also... You know, he does not come across as just some kind of ranting lunatic. Like, he seemed like a really smart dude. And also, one of those uh, things that makes you feel bad about yourself, because when I first start talking to him, and he's like, I apologize because my English is a little rusty. Now, I think we have a false dichotomy happening here. I'm just like, all right. Now I feel like an idiot for not even coming close to knowing any other language as well as you clearly know one in which you regard yourself as rusty. Uh, but... It seemed like, you know, he, he definitely knew what they were doing there and what, what the effect is going to be of signing a guy like Paul Harris. 
uh, and took the approach that, hey, what would you have us do? Just have these guys be blackballed from the sport um, and not give them a chance to earn a living doing the one thing that they can do. And in talking to him, I was struck by a lot of moments where I would feel like, okay, some of that seems like a rationalization of what you're doing. I mean, it's it's helpful for you to get these guys and the controversy that comes with them. It brings attention to you. Uh, and then to be able to kind of write it off as, well, you guys are all just, you, you judge too quickly. Um, let us have them for a little while before you judge that kind of thing. Uh, but also he would say things like, you know, I think a lot of this, what's going to happen with MMA fighters, you're going to see a lot of guys end up in poverty and kind of forgotten by the sport and by the fans who used to care about them. And I can't really disagree with that. I think that definitely a lot of guys are going to be headed toward a, a pretty, dark future once they absolutely cannot do it anymore and everybody kind of turns their back on them. So uh, I, I, if you're taking the approach that hey, if these guys still want to fight and they still can fight, why not give them a place to do it as long as people still want to see it? I mean, would you watch a Jason Miller versus Luke Barnett fight? I think you probably would, Jed Dennis. I'm not watching it. Yes, you. No, I'm not. I don't. I don't really care. Uh, but I think you're not. Lot- you're not curious. You don't want to see what, what that fight would look like. Nope. Not at all. Nope. Don't care. Why is that? Like, why? Why would I care? Like, what's the what's the point of this, really? Besides, uh, we think we can make money off of it. You've got a guy who, in Jason Maya Miller, who, like, I don't know. You just talk to him, so you can you might be able to speak to this a little bit more directly than I can. But a guy who seems like he has been just trundling from one personal problem to the next, and a guy who, in all of his his public appearances is either trying to work a very strange marketing gimmick or is really unstable. And when, when you get into that kind of territory, to me, it's not a question of, Oh, we shouldn't blackball these guys from the sport if they want to continue to fight. Like that's a different issue to me. Like if there are aging fighters who are past their prime who want to continue to fight and they can do it safely, I don't really have a problem with that. But when you're dealing with a guy like Jason Miller, who's been in and out of jail like within the last month and who seems to have some some mental issues perhaps going on with him, then you get into uh, like an exploitive situation with that I don't really want to be part of. And, and it's not that I want to deny this guy his chance to make a living doing anything, but like I just I don't know if it is safe or, uh, you know, philosophically uh, commendable to have him out there fighting. To me, it's sort of a, an idea akin to like how many drug convictions can you have and they will continue to let you be a pharmacist, you know, like no one says you can't earn a living. They just say you can't earn a living as a pharmacist. Right. And to, to counter that, I think, uh, Miller and, uh, uh, Frank Miranda would both say he hasn't been convicted of anything yet. He has like five open cases, you know, he has the domestic violence one, obviously the most serious one, um, and a, a DUI one in which he insists that the DUI stemmed from his refusal to, do any breathalyzer, uh, take any sobriety test, participate in any of that kind of stuff, um, which in California automatically right there, you're, you're nailed on that. Um, and then, you know, this most recent arrest was over a, a vandalism charge, spray painting, a, I believe a derogatory saying about the police on the wall of a shuttered tattoo shop, uh, in Orange County. Oh boy. Yeah. And 
And I mean, look, I'm not saying that like legally J- Jason Miller shouldn't be able to go out and, and ply his trade. I mean, the, although the, that's the reason we have state athletic commissions in America is to, to at least in theory make sure that the stuff that we're putting on is is safe and and, and or as safe as it can be. Uh, I'm just saying that as a promoter, I don't know how you put that kind of thing on in good conscience. And as a fan, I'm not particularly interested in, in, in watching it because I feel like it would make me feel personally kind of ghoulish. Yeah, well... I guess I would feel that way more if I thought that he had been doing absolutely nothing but drinking and running wild in the streets, uh, which is, it seems like the impression that he has worked hard to present sure. at times. Uh, and when talking to people around him and everything, it did sound like, you know, he's really in their training and, and is taking it seriously. Uh, I know Luke Barnett, uh, I talked to him, sounds like he's taking it seriously and is unsure whether Miller is as well. Um, so, I, I guess I am curious to see if they're right that he can still fight and uh, if there's still some some work that either one of those guys could do. I, I One of the things that got me when I talked to Luke Barnett about it a little bit was he was just saying, you know, when you're outside the UFC, you feel like you're out in the cold suddenly. Uh, you get cut, especially with him. He got cut. He had a couple split decision losses in there, but he had three in a row. Um, and so that almost automatically, unless you're somebody special, triggers a, a firing from the UFC. And then suddenly you're out there and it seems like what can he do that anybody will give a damn about in the mainstream block of MMA fans? Even like the pretty hardcore people. When he was fighting in Venator 2 against some Italian dude we never heard of, we didn't even really know it was happening necessarily. And then when he goes uh, back home to England a couple months later and knocks some guy out again, nobody really cares. Uh, and so I can see how for him, a fight like this is kind of a double-edged sword. That some of those guys, they feel like they can still fight. They want to prove it. They they want to be able to put on a show and, and get some attention. And a fight with a more controversial figure, something like that, with with Jason Miller, it brings that for him. Uh, and that is kind of one of the things that I see as a problem that I've heard from other people in the past that I can't say is an invalid criticism, as they feel like, and. Unless you are one of those rare, really rare superstars, you're just one moment of pissing Dana White away, p- pissing him off away from being basically kicked out into the cold and nobody cares about you anymore or even knows what you're doing. Um, and so I just do think it's important to have good options out there like, you know, other promoters that can help you put on a show. And yet, how are those promoters supposed to get us to pay attention? I can't really blame them for thinking controversy is the way to do it. No, I, I suppose not. Uh, and it's not really Luke Barnett's inclusion here that I, <laughs> that I right. have an issue with. Right, but you didn't give a shit about it when he was fighting other I dudes. don't give a shit about it now. Let's be clear. <laughs> but we're talking about it now. I know. It was a slow week. A guy <laughs> only wants to do rounds about stuff he's reported on. Hey, this uh, was not my idea, very by the quickly, way. Very quickly, we only have a couple minutes, but tell us, what, like, what was your impression of Jason Miller coming out of this? Um. Again, that he's kind of, at times, totally the same old Jason Miller you remember, and then at times a little bit farther out there than that. And uh, seems like if you're trying to answer the question of or is he presenting an image out there, is he really suffering from stuff that's going to get him into trouble, um, I don't know. I think it's all somewhere in the middle between that. I think that, as, as several people said to me, fighting is the thing that gives him a, a purpose and something to focus on and uh, something to to be better for, but at the same time, it brings a lot of the attention that kind of fuels those um, outlandish exhibitionist aspects of his personality. So uh, I don't know. I hope it has a happy ending for him. 
All right, well, that's going to do it for round number two. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number three right now. Well, Ben, a little bit of rare Monday breaking news this week as the UFC officially announced on its website today that uh, Christiane Cyborg Justino will make her long-awaited Octagon debut at UFC 198 in May in a 140-pound catchweight fight against Leslie Smith. Uh, a long time coming, I guess, for, for a lot of hardcore fans that have wanted to see Cyborg Justino on the sport's biggest stage for a while now, uh, and I, I don't know exactly what we have to thank for uh, any kind of thawing in the relationship between the UFC and Cyborg Justino, which at times has been strained and at times has seen the discourse dip uh, to regrettably low levels. Uh, but here we have a fight for Cyborg in the octagon, and not just that, but one where she doesn't have to make the women's bantamweight limit, and one that seems... Uh, from a matchmaking standpoint, to be one where she is liable to come out of it uh, looking pretty good. So, what 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 was your first reaction today to to hearing that Cyborg will finally make her way to the octagon? Uh, concern for the health of Leslie Smith. That yeah. was my reaction. Yeah, let's talk about Leslie Smith as an opponent because, like I said, this seems like a debut for Chris Cyborg. That she is that is designed to for her to win and to look good doing it. You got Leslie Smith, who is a UFC women's bantamweight, although she is not in the UFC women's bantamweight top fifteen, which tells you something to, from us from the start. And her previous two fights in Invicta before she came to the UFC in 2014 were both at the women's flyweight division at 125 pounds. So you've got a smallish women's bantamweight moving up to a catch weight of 140 pounds to fight a much larger fighter who is coming down from 145 to make that catch weight. I would assume if Leslie Smith loses this, it will trigger an immediate rematch since she is jumping up two weight classes to I fight see. Cyborg Justino. I see what you did there. Yeah, I get it. It's a little insider baseball humor yeah. for the kids at home. I get it. Uh, other than concern for Leslie Smith, I mean, it is... It seemed like uh, ever since the UFC head honchos kind of confirmed that they were paying uh, Cyborg's way in Invicta there, they, they had their eyes on moving her eventually over to the UFC. And moving her over at 140 pounds seemed like, okay, we're trying to inch toward something that we can work with here. It also makes me wonder, though, even if – because before the talk was, hey, if she can't get down to 135 pounds, forget it, man. The UFC has a 135-pound women's division and nothing above that. If you want to fight Ronda Rousey, you got to get in here and fight in the divisions we have. We can't do anything to help you out. Uh, and now that the situation done changed a little bit at women's bantamweight, uh, and also the UFC's attitude on some of that stuff has maybe changed a little bit, now it starts to look like, all right, let's see what we can make happen. Because if people want to see a fight and there's money to be made there, then damn it, how long are we going to tow this this hard 135-pound limit line? Um, so 
I, it'll be interesting to see how this goes for Cyborg, right? Because it seemed like for a while we were hearing, all right, she's going to she's gonna inch her way toward women's bantamweight. And when you see her, it just doesn't seem possible. It certainly doesn't seem healthy. Like if we're going to have Joe Rogan on these broadcasts talking about how nice it is to see uh, people not cutting weight and the absolute insanity of weight cuts in MMA, and then we're going to turn around and, and insist that Cyborg get down to 135 pounds, then we all got to start to feel a little bit like hypocrites. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this goes and how she looks from the weight cut and everything and, and, and how, uh, how the landscape looks in a few months time, really. Yeah. Well, you're right to say that the situation done changed, like not only because you've had sea change at the top, but also because like you said, Ronda Rousey was always adamant that she would not fight Cyborg at a catch weight, uh, but would fight Gina Carano in a box on a Fox in a train on a plane. Uh, you know, was always super adamant that Cyborg would have to come down to 135. Uh, both of the women's bantamweight champions that we've had in the wake of Ronda Rousey's reign have immediately said that they would totally fight Chris Cyborg at a catch weight of 140 pounds. Uh, so I think you've opened up a lot of new options, and and it could be that having this catch weight fight is a trial run to try to see about getting Chris Cyborg down to 135. Uh, and if not. I think, you know, you automatically give yourself a lot of additional options for, for the big three, if you will, at women's bantamweight, no matter what happens. Uh, if if Ronda Rousey returns and, and fights Misha Tate like we all think she's going to, if she retains the 135-pound the championship and Cyborg can get down to that weight, then I think you got a huge fight on your hands there. If Cyborg can't get down to 140, you can basically match her against Misha Tate or Holly Holm at that catch weight anytime you want. And nobody's going to complain about it. So just having her in the mix any at any weight certainly gives you a, a, a bunch of new options. Does it not also, though, maybe ultimately force your hand with regards to Ronda Rousey should she manage to come back and climb back to the mountaintop? Because if you go ahead and match her up with Cyborg against either Misha Tate or Holly Holm at 140-pound catch weight, you're essentially saying, all right, we're not we're not married to the 135-pound limit, and there's an interesting fight to be made. We'll make it. Um, unless it might involve Ronda Rousey getting her face smashed in, which we absolutely cannot have under any circumstances. It's definitely one of a lot of factors that is starting to make Ronda Rousey look a little smaller in our public view. Like, she did not handle the loss to Holly Holm very well. I mean, first of all, she got basically uh, schooled on the feet against Holly Holm in their fight, which I think more than anything else undid her the the aura of invincibility that she had around her she did not handle that loss particularly well the public perception is has come to be one that perhaps she has placed her loyalties uh unwisely in a coach that does not have any other real high level championship fighters uh there are a lot of people that question her her personal relationships and the choices she makes there and now you've got this situation where she, like, historically for a long time refused to fight Cyborg, and everybody else seems to want to do it. So I think you're right that if you have her and Cyborg Justino fighting in the same organization at the same time, and if they are both, especially if they're both successful, there are going to be a lot of kind of uncomfortable questions. Yeah. Doesn't it seem also, though, for Cyborg's own, I don't want to say legacy, but if she wants to be regarded as the best female fighter in the world... Um, as long as you're the bigger fighter making people come up to meet you because you just there's nobody really for her to fight at 145 pounds anymore, 
as long as it's everybody else has to come up and give up weight, give up size going up against Cyborg, there's always going to be that built-in thing. Like, all right, so you beat a bunch of smaller fighters. You can go in there, you can, you can beat Leslie Smith, you could beat Holly Holm, you could beat Misha Tate, and people are always going to say that to you. Do so you think that she absolutely needs to find some way to get down there in order for her to be considered on an even playing field? Yeah, maybe. I mean, the... the positive steroid test doesn't help from her 2011 fight and strike force doesn't help either because that's always going to give uh people who who want to undermine you that the ammunition that they need uh but yeah i mean i think you're always going to have if she never fights ronda rousey if they if they never if she never gets down to 135 and if the ufc doesn't implement a 145 pound division uh for her to fight in yeah i suppose you're always going to have that as a, uh, you know, as a mark against her legacy that she, you know, didn't fight in, in the biggest, you know, most popular, most competitive women's division of her era. Uh, but it's also, I mean, it's also true that, that they started that division, not at her weight. So, I mean, I don't know. And, and like you said, when you see her in person, she just seems so massive. It seems really hard for her to get down to that weight. I don't know that you can like, totally hold that against her like no. if the ufc had had made a, the women's 145 pound division instead of 135 pound division like we, we might be talking about a different landscape right now yeah well, it would be cyborg all alone atop a heap of wasted bodies <laughs> uh we should also point out the somewhat singular nature of ufc 198 going down in a 43,000 seat stadium in curitiba brazil uh it's kind of stacked with with uh, Globo's favorites. Uh, you, Fabricio <laughs> Verdum defends his uh, heavyweight title against Stipe Miocic. You got uh, uh, Jocker Ray against Vitor Belfort in the in the co-main. Anderson Silva fights Uriah Hall. And then you've also got Shogun Hu on the card. You got Damian Maya on the card. You got Lil Nog on the card. Uh, and then from there, just pretty much stacked down through the list with popular Brazilian attractions. So it's possible that bringing Chris Cyborg onto this particular card uh, serves the du- the dual purpose also of, of helping to continue to build what may be a massive live gate. Yeah, and saying to the nation of Brazil, see, we haven't forgot about you. Just because we're over there showing love to Ireland doesn't mean we forgot about you, Brazil. At least once a year, we will put all of your favorite fighters on one card. <laughs> you, will be, you will be happy to pile into a soccer stadium You will get and watch what it. you get and you will not throw a fit. Uh, all right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, this week I'm just saying, did you hear that Ariel Helwani is no longer with Fox Sports? I did hear something about that. Yeah, that seemed like uh, he was he dressed it a little bit on the Fortnite today. It seemed like uh, people at Fox Sports gave him a phone call, let him go, um, and he he spoke about it a little bit. But I'm just saying... If you are Fox Sports and you do this show about the UFC on TV, this this sports organization that you cover in this show but that you also broadcast, and you let go the multiple-time MMA Journalist of the Year, basically the only really highly respected journalist you had on your show, um, and the only guy where when it was a bunch of dudes like Michael Bisping, Dominic Cruz, uh and Ariel Hawani and uh, Kenny Florian all standing around talking about fighting. He was the only one where you'd look at him and go, okay, there was, there's a guy who is not a UFC employee. And you take him out of the picture. What am I going to be looking at 
should I happen to accidentally stumble upon your show. It doesn't seem like you made it better in that sense of the word. I'm just saying, maybe that was a mistake. Just saying, given what we know about Fox Sports, I wish everyone could see my surprised face. <laughs> uh, man, I, this week I'm just saying, man, you cannot make this stuff up. We, we talked a lot on the podcast the last few weeks about the story of this fight to legalize mixed martial arts in New York and how that was one of the most over overplayed, overreported stories uh, in the industry. Well, everyone got their wish this past week after a lot of complete silliness. MMA was, in fact, legalized in the state of New York. And the very next day, I think, at least within a couple of days of this happening, what showed up? On my mixed martial arts news timeline, a bunch of stories about the possibility of Fedor coming back to the UFC. Oh, boy. So I guess this is a joint, are you fucking kidding me, and also just saying. I'm just saying, man. Come on, guys. We can do better than this, can't we? Time is a flat circle, Chad. Oh, God. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week uh, to look ahead at the uh, April 10th UFC event. So who's fighting at that? Any ideas? I think your mother. I don't think that's right. My mom fought, hung up the gloves a while ago. I'll check it on Wikipedia. Took off her wrestling shoes and left them at the side of the map <laughs> as a sign that she was. So you're not even doing it. You said you're doing it and you're not. <laughs> I made the noise. Though. Uh, yeah, the noise sounded great. Anyway, I guess uh, for now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. See, I, I heard your mother talk about her retirement and everything, but uh, I think she just ran away from Musada personally. Well, yeah, she did get out as quickly as she could.